Hey everyone, thanks for checking out the Black Movie Podcast. On behalf of everyone involved, we appreciate your support of the content. For this episode, we do have a disclaimer. I know, not ideal for the first episode, but we just want to let everyone know that this being the first episode, we made some mistakes and some of the audio is a bit distorted. We decided to release the episode anyway because Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is an excellent movie and we had a great discussion about it. Once again, we appreciate the support and apologize for the issue. Hello and welcome to the Black Movie Podcast. Today, we are talking about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. My name is Andre. With me, I have Lauren. Hello. We have Ryan. Hey, everybody. And we have James. Hey, hey. And so this is, we're just a group of coworkers that uh, just want to talk movies because that's what we like. Um, and so we're starting off with the 2018 Oscar winner of Best Animated Film. Or did I get that year wrong? It movie came out December 2018. There we go. 2019 Oscar winner for Best Animated Film. Into Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about is just talk about why we picked this movie because this is one of my favorite animated movies to come out in recent memory i don't know if you all feel that same sort of sentiment agreed yeah it's pretty solid i will say it's my absolute favorite because i'm not as deep into the comic book genre but it is like my favorite comic book movie not including Meteor Man, of course, if that counts. Mm. We're going to get to that one later. <laughs> Just, you know, set, setting up some um, <laughs> up some foreshadowing there. Uh, <laughs> you know, season 6, Meteor Man. But, uh, but no, I, I really love this movie. On rewatch, it really hit me just as hard as it did on the first watch, which is pretty uncommon for me. So I think it's really high up there on, list of, on the list of anime features that I've liked from like the past 15 years. Yeah, I would agree. It... Um... I think this was my fourth time watching it, and it still hit me just as hard. Not quite as hard as the first time. First time I saw this movie, I cried at the end. But it's it's easily my favorite animated movie. It is, without question, the best Spider-Man movie to be made. Come fight me. Amen. And uh, I, I'm excited to talk more about it. I'm still making that case for Spider-Man 3. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> we were about to vote you on this podcast. <laughs> Yeah, I was about to get ejected from the Zoom call. Uh, but like, one of my favorite elements of this film is the animation and the visuals, the way they use color, the way they manipulate frame rate at times with different inserts and timing out characters um, differently and uh, animating on ones and twos at different times. And so I just want to just kind of ask the group about the visuals of the film just so that I wasn't the only one out here just in awe of everything and just telling everyone that's listening to this podcast right now, yeah, they did this, this, and this, you know, nerd glasses. <laughs> and, yeah, it's like, oh, did you know they did this and this? And so, real quick, just kind of get a feel for what everyone felt about the animation. I know for some people, though, even though the art style of the film is fantastic, in my opinion... It did make them dizzy to start out the film, going with that uh, that uh, comic book cell shaded style with the probably more than we've ever seen. Uh, I'll hop in on that note that you mentioned about it being making people dizzy. I didn't experience that this time, but I remember very clearly the first time I saw this in theaters, um, getting really dizzy at the beginning um, as stuff starts to like shade, fade, and shift, and like. The colors are so bright and it was so dark in the theater. Like, I remember kind of having to adjust in a way that I'd never had to before. I didn't experience that at home, but the visuals are, I think, impeccable. And, and to me, not being like a movie person, like I don't watch a lot of movies um, in general. Uh, I had never seen a movie with visuals like this before. And I don't think I've seen anything that's even tried to be this like visually distinctive sense. So it was very crazy to me that they were able to make something like this work yeah one of the things i really like about this movie is that it it ties in sort of the graffiti styles that you often see in places so well into the actual art design of the film and like that kind of resonated with me throughout the whole thing it's not just one image it's layers of images 
in a way that like really speak together, have a certain harmony and also a discordance that is almost like visual jazz, right? It's both unnerving and really grating and awesome mm. at the same time. Um, and there are parts when like, it's just an honestly gorgeous film, but there are parts in it where um, not so much the shading, but the, the different frame rates just made me feel itchy under the skin. Um, but as it starts to smooth out, it's just one of those really nice feelings as like the different background scenes start to like gel and move together. And at times, Miles' background seems like it's 2D and then it becomes 3D and then it becomes 2D again. It just feel alive more than you typically do in most animated films or any films, honestly, period. One of the things that I thought was really um, interesting was about um, seeing like a screen tone uh, done on the the cell shaded models. So, like there, there's some scenes where like I paused, um, like when he's first developing, Miles is first developing his powers and he's having his comic book monologue pop up um, as he's walking through the school. Um, and you know those parts with where that happens, he's got the the half tone shading. If you look closely on his face, which is just like a really nice touch to match the um, the things happening with, um, you know, with the lettering and with, with the lettering to really give it that comic book feel. Um, and there's something that I I haven't been able to confirm because I've been trying. I've been I saw someone say it and I can't get it out of my head, which is Miles is animated differently than his background in the beginning of the film. But then after he gets his powers and starts to gain confidence, he's animated more smoothly, which is a a really fascinating, like subtle way to show the character kind of coming into his own. Yeah, just there's just so much depth in um, nearly every frame of this movie. I, I told myself I'm gonna go slow and like catch all of the good scenes and Easter eggs, and I said I will be here for four hours, and I still tried to do it because it was a lot of fun. Oh man, I there are times like. I remember seeing this the second time around uh, in the theater with my friends. I think the first time I went with my dad and my nephew. But that second time around, I caught so many random Easter eggs in the background, like different references to celebrities. And it was it's a hilarious movie just to watch in uh, slow motion, just to see all of that craziness. But, Brian, as you were saying, uh, I know they the, a lot of the not the animators, but the. I think it was the head animator and the head visual artist. They did a few interviews and uh, there's a few different pieces out on YouTube where they talk about that animation style, animating the ones and twos at different points. And for those that are listening to this podcast that don't know what that means. Uh, so when you animate on twos, basically you can think of it as animating if uh Regular film is animated at 24 frames per second. Animating on two, twos means that you take an element or you take the film and you animate it at 12 frames per second. And animating on ones is animating at 24 frames per second. And so that's what that lingo means. And one of the things I thought really served the story well was the way that they did manipulate the animation to show miles's discomfort at times with what was going on in the story um along with that just looking at the little details that popped up in the picture like uh the spidey sense and how like subtly that it would come into frame uh, as well i think was just all around fantastic and yeah i could i just glow when I talk about this movie. <laughs> One other thing about the Spidey sense that I, I don't think that I ever caught in any previous watching of this movie is that when the two spider people are sensing each other, their spider senses are different colors initially. And then once they realize that they're both, you know, spider persons, their Spidey sense match in color which I never caught before, but it's such a like cool visual indication of like the Spidey sense showing somebody who could be a threat to converting to somebody who is not a threat, who's like you. I thought it was so interesting. I think that the actually the phrase that you're like me is the one that they use pretty frequently. It's really powerful. It, it's really great to just see that, you know, that recognition because so much of traditional Spider-Man is tied up in, you know, here is this, you know, lonely, um, lonely teen, you know, carrying great power, great responsibility, and no one can really understand his life as, as student slash 
freelance reporter in a world where prints still exist. <laughs> and, um, and also, and also Ursat's superhero. But Spider-Verse kind of gives this whole world where there are lots of other spider people. And, and I think that it really makes a difference in terms of like how, how Miles grows through the story versus how we typically see a superhero origin story centered on their total complete uniqueness. One of the things I do want to mention, um, because James mentioned it, uh, talking about that Spidey senses kind of hinted at this was how well they, how distinct each character was visually. I thought was very mm-hmm. impressive and beyond yeah. the sort of this one character has this sort of motion. It was like, no, each character had its own color palette. And whenever they did anything, it was just incorporated into the scene. And I thought that was one incredibly helpful just to keep, you know, all the different spider characters unique in my head, but just I thought it played very well. I know Lauren used that jazz metaphor earlier. I think that was, I think that's a very good metaphor for a lot of films that we're going to be talking about over the course of the next few weeks. It's just, it just was just beautiful jazz for the eyes. Yeah, I really like that too. Actually, I was thinking about that, what you were just saying, Andre, while, while Ryan was speaking, because I also love the different animation styles for each of the characters. And there's two other things that called out to me, right? One is the ways in which this movie draws on its predecessors. This is like what the ninth Spider-Man movie, depending on how you want to count. Uh, or what you want to you know forget ever was created. Spider-Man 3. <laughs> and so it pulls like a lot of those previous gags, especially at the beginning when it's explaining Spider-Man. It even references emo Spider-Man. But by having each of these different characters come in, be animated differently, there are also different sections of animation history that are being pulled and woven into this broader thread. So I really particularly love the fact that this movie visually and in story blends things together. It blends those different characters and the different types of media they come from. It blends their animation styles. It blends, you know, the graffiti of the background into the foreground. It just does a really great job of mixing things together in a way that's just really unique, but also like still nods back to the history of both Spider-Man specifically and animation broadly speaking, which is awesome, right? You don't really get a lot of references to the you know, the Spider-Man noir type person with the simple shading and he's, um, you know, his differently drawn lines and whatnot versus the super cartoony round tones of like Spider-Pig. And it's just like, it's beautiful to see all in one film and it shouldn't work visually. There's so many different styles. It shouldn't work visually, but it does. So it goes back to all that again, being jazz. There's no reason it should sound good at all, but it does. I actually think that a neat, uh, you know, when I initially watched it, I was wondering whether it made sense to have all of those characters or whether you could have really just gotten away with Peter B. Parker and Gwen and maybe one other for humor. But I honestly think that it's all of them together that gives you that cohesion because every, every single one of them finds a thematic lane sort of in, in terms of the lines that they do have and, and the interactions that they, uh, that, that they have with miles. And I think that that's actually really an achievement considering how much is crammed into so little dialogue from uh from a lot of them that you you have a solid idea of their character you've like actually ironically enough the the introduction comic book motif did a good job of like priming you to understand what they're going to do with this character so yeah i was really just happy that they managed to draw those things in and for people who are lapsed comic book fans like me who don't spend a ton of time reading comics actively anymore. It was a good reminder of some of the things that are available in the back catalogs and things that, you know, oh, I, I could go back and read Spider-Man Noir or giggle to myself about him having a Rubik's Cube and it changing his, changing his life. Or, you know, or you know, wanted me to look into some of those other comics going back to Spider-Gwen. Um, and, and I think that that's um, a really great thing to be able to come out of a movie and feel like not just like, oh, you know, now I have to catch up with a ton of things like I did leaving MCU movies where it's like, oh, well, I guess now I have to do a lot of homework. Instead, this is a good, you know, sneak peek of some of the cool parts of these characters if I wanted to dive in more. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. But one of the things that really stuck out stuck out to me, though, visually was Miles. And not just because of some of the frame rate things we were talking about earlier. But as we've all mentioned, uh, just the, his style, just as a, just as a character in this world and interacting with everyone else, 
was just fun and unique. <laughs> and I like I don't remember having that much fun watching one of these uh one of these superhero movies just because of the character or the protagonist. Usually I'll have fun just because stuff going on in the movie theater, like with Black Panther and all of the mania around that or, uh, you know, Endgame and just watching that movie and just what that whole Marvel Cinematic Universe meant to me personally just to see Endgame. But I know Miles was, Miles himself was just such a great character in this. Yeah, agreed. Can I just say that how much I love the animation of Miles's hair. I mean, so let's talk about one. Hair is generally challenging to animate. Pixar has made huge strides in that in some ways, but mostly for white characters or other characters. Black hair is notoriously even harder to animate or draw in a way that makes sense. Or style. But with Miles, or style, or I mean, anything really. But like with Miles, like he's got hair where I'm like, I kind of want to dig my fingers into it. And I feel like it's going to look, it's going to feel exactly like I think it does. It's going to feel like it's textured. It's going to be curly. It's going to be soft. It's going to be hair that I recognize because I have it, right? Like, which is unusual in any sense. It's not particularly styled. He doesn't have like a super close buzz cut or like a square top fade of some sort because it's apparently impossible to draw black people having hair that, you know, has curves to it by any means. But he's got like what I would consider normal hair. Like, that's just basically he's got normal hair. And it's so unusual to see that in an animated black character that I absolutely love like how much time and attention they pay to it. And I'm not sure that all audiences would note that, but like as a black woman, I know that, right. It's unusual for me to see that in an animated character like that. It's something that takes me immediately out of immersion. When I see a black character whose hair isn't right in video game world, uh, I had a chance to start playing the final fantasy seven remaster and Barrett, the black character in that game, who's, got about three hours worth of stereotypes to explain. You know, when they zoom in on his fade, I realize that his hair pattern is not, that is not a a 3C or 4C hair pattern. (laughs) That is very much some, you know, some, uh, some silky weave at best. It is really disturbing to like, every time that there's a a close-up shot, it reminds me that nobody black touched this product. And with Miles, it's the opposite. You know, like there's, uh, there's a feeling of care and love when you see when you see him animated, and not just his um, his hair, but you know there are plenty of times where his facial expressions, even the way he walks in space, he walks with rhythm in a way that's extremely recognizable to me. As far as like you know, as far as you know, looking at it, like any of my younger cousins or you know or my you know my my pseudo nephews could be you know Miles walking down the street with confidence, you know, after listening to their favorite song to gas them up in the morning. I mean, there's there's so much of Miles that just screams authenticity for those who are tuned to hear it, I guess. And so for for black audiences, for you know for Afro Latino audiences, because of the way he talks with his with his family, he's got the Puerto Rican flag on his luggage. You know he spe- he switches back and forth between you know English and Spanish when talking to his mother. Oh, the Jays, the Jays, yes. And he keeps the Jays, and that is one of the things that I've always. Like, yeah, if I was a superhero and I had the ability to color coordinate my costume, I would absolutely have a pair of matching J's, you know, as you do. But I I think it was really fantastic that, like, he was recognizable in every way. And it was a thing that let us kind of attach to other parts of the movie and character because we weren't having to do as much work to relate to him. Speaking of, like, Miles' style, I love that his style also gives you a hint about his mindset. Uh, one thing I noted this time watching through the movie is it, it's they mentioned his shoes a lot. I mean, the, the shoestrings and the whole thing, like, that's a thing in the movie. But what I found really interesting is that Miles doesn't tie his shoes until he feels like he has control over his life, and then his shoes are tied. So up until that point, he's, he chooses to leave his shoes untied. He trips on them all the time. But at you know a pivotal story point in the movie the shoes no longer become an issue. And I feel like it's symbolizing some sort of like transformation from someone who feels like they don't have a lot of control in their life to someone who has really like figured out what their place and purpose is, which I thought was really interesting 
about the way that they kind of designed his character and, and subtly made these adjustments as the movie goes on. Yeah, and even beyond that, I think one of my favorite parts about this movie was that his story was relatable to everyone. And um, so often when we see uh, minorities or even uh, people in the LGBTQ plus community um, in in uh, major media, it seems like they created this awesome character and put them in this crap story. <laughs> but for this, you like this. It seems like they had this awesome story and then they created this awesome character to be in that story. And I wish more media was like that. Uh, where we had a great story with a great character as opposed to having a great character in the middle of this in, in the middle of this just story or whatever and i think it's a very subtle thing cuz it felt like it was intent the intention was them for them to have this great story first and then put this awesome character into it as opposed to having this great character and then let's build a story around them agreed and i appreciate that for this, often with like minority characters, especially like them being a minority is some major focus point of it, or it becomes a thing. And with Miles, it as it isn't right. He's not being chased by the villain because he's a black Latino. He's not. It's not the core of any of the stuff. Even though he comes from two worlds, he doesn't seem overly concerned by it. Right? He easily fits back and forth in any space he's in. His conflict doesn't come from his identity as a like in a racial or ethnic sense. Nor is that ever a thing, really, within the film, which I actually really appreciate because it shouldn't always be about that, right? You just have a great story that anyone can relate to. We don't spend time questioning when we have white protagonists in these movies, you know, how they feel about their you know, own ethnic identity. We think about them versus whatever conflict they're in, the bigger conflict, and that's what matters here. And it's just really nice to be able to have that story that people can identify with and that Miles is a normal kid, right? Like if you close your eyes and just listen to the, to the movie, you wouldn't think anything differently than you would by watching any other version of Spider-Man, except for that it's inherently way better. Just because the overall story is, is better developed and the characters are better developed, but it's not about him being the black Spider-Man either. I, I did really like that. Like, as Lauren mentioned, that's, I think, really key to why this movie works. But one thing that I think is really interesting about that is that even though they don't bring up Miles' ethnicity really at all in the movie, if I remember correctly, but as a black person, it still felt like it resonated with my experience as a black person like in America. The, the feeling of being separated from and maybe this is unique for me but the feeling of being separated from your local friends to go to this prep school where you maybe are isolated the, the feeling of being alienated and not really knowing like how the world was going to deal with you to finding your place and finding like your direction you want to go personally felt very very in tune with my experience in life I don't know if it was purposeful or not when they were writing the movie, or maybe that's just a universal story that applies to everybody. But for me, it felt very targeted to my personal experience as a black man in America, which I thought was very interesting considering that they don't talk about ethnicity really in any capacity in this movie. Like it's, it's a non-issue uh, effectively. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I, I also went to a private school like Miles did. So like, Similar to you, I had similar, I feel, out of my element here. But I think the, what's great about Miles is anyone can be Miles, right? You might just be a new kid in a new school and feel like Miles. You might be a black kid in America and feel like Miles. Like, you can actually translate it to your own experience, and that's awesome. Anyone can wear the suit. <laughs> I was waiting for someone to say it. <laughs> and on that note, we're going to get into the spoiler talk here. Mainly because of how, just one, it's very hard to talk about Miles without bringing up very specific things in terms of relatability. Like, the scene, just going out here with the first spoiler, when, uh, so if you haven't seen the movie, this is the part to just go ahead and just cut off, go see the movie, go watch it, and come back to, as I smack my mic around in my home setup here. That first scene... Was so funny, him in the crowd after the big Stan Lee sighting, him in the crowd at uh, at uh, Peter uh, Parker's funeral, 
and MJ says, everyone, or no, everyone's counting on you, or something like that. And then the dude just whispers, eh, probably not. <laughs> not you specifically. <laughs> Metaphorically. But honestly, like, that that was one of the things that I I related to a whole, whole lot, because Miles and his, the, his dealing with pressure is something that I think is universal in terms of kids rebelling against uh, the expectations that other people have for them. But for me, in my experience, what, you know, the, the super high expectations of parents, uh, of teachers, which we all see in the movie, and then the expectations to live up to the legacy of the other Spider-Man, when he's in that scene at the funeral, he's wearing a cheap costume version of Spider-Man's outfit, and it doesn't fit. And I think that the fact that it doesn't fit and that it doesn't really go on properly very much feels like, you know, a thing that calls attention to that. He's trying to live up to something in a way that, in trying to act how he thinks a successor to Spider-Man should be. And he's really caught up in trying to do it. And I think he's disillusioned in all the times where he's trying to come into that power. It's really difficult to, to like, it was really difficult for me to watch him fail uh, because you're invested in his success by the midpoint of the movie. Everybody wants this kid to be great, and you know it's going to be really cool when he figures it out. But you're not sure you're not sure when he's going to figure it out. And it honestly, happens way later in the movie than I would have expected. I mean, he steps out his like Miles' Spider-Man costume is not red. <laughs> Miles' Spider-Man costume has a hoodie on and is wearing J's. Like it is something that he's made his own rather than like he's trying to look like typical Spider-Man. And I, and that very much felt like. This character's coming into his own. He's managed to do... Him being ready to be Spider-Man also meant being ready to be himself in a way that I thought was really, really creative, um, really heartwarming, and made me think think about, like, the the graffiti he did about, you know, wanting no expectations as both um, what he had been dueling in his book and what he spray-painted with his uncle. I mean, going back to the end of the movie and changing that to Great Expectations, which was his actual prompt... <laughs> Showed that he was a little more familiar now with with how he felt about himself and didn't feel like he couldn't fit in anymore. Yeah, that was actually one of my favorite like callbacks or motifs throughout the movie was him dealing with the expectations, whether it's school during that whole entire school montage, which kind of makes me want to reevaluate the American educational system, <laughs> <laughs> or you know all the the main feature of the film, just a Spider Man mantra or spider-man uh, uh mantle you know seeing him in that suit that was clearly for kids just running around doesn't quite fit trying to jump off of buildings and not really knowing how to do it and then to see him finally see himself in that suit and then you know sort of remix it so it fit him personally that was i feel like that's also something we talked about um miles's relatability that's also something that we all kind of see or we all kind of do with a lot of things that we uh encounter in life a lot of challenges that we face and actually like we haven't talked a lot about the other characters in the movie but what you guys just talked about of miles sort of in the little kid style spider-man suit doesn't quite fit right and even the the line that gets thrown out to him about how it will always it'll, it'll fit eventually it's a nice juxtaposition to Peter B. Parker, who has kind of grown out of his spider suit, right? Like at this point, he's gotten over it. He's despondent. Like he started to gain weight. Like he doesn't really fit in the spider suit anymore. And he's on the other end of that spectrum from Miles, right? Like he feels like he's failed all expectations. Miles can't meet expectations. Peter B. Parker has failed expectations. And both of them are basically distended and stretched out of their suits and uncomfortable in their suits in um, different ways. And over time, they kind of get back into that a little bit more. But it's a great way of as they become friends and they start helping each other more, like they get a little bit more comfortable in their own clothes. And eventually they kind of feel like they fit a little bit better, which is also different from the other spider people who don't seem to have as much of an issue with themselves as, as spider pig or spider Gwen or whatever it is like. And part of that's because we didn't really dive deep into their stories but also because they seem to have found a certain level of comfort with who they are and they don't seem to struggle with it the same way that Peter B. Parker or Miles do. Yeah. So that just reminds me of that scene where he was, uh, when they were trying to, you know, see, you know, test his, uh, 
preparedness or his fit for the man for uh, Spider Man, and he uh, and just everyone seemed to be a you know projecting themselves onto him with some of the things that they were mission or mentioning. Uh, you know, are you graceful like a ballerina? Can you you know do all of this computer hacking? Do you float in the air when you smell a pie and all that? <laughs> You know, just all of those different, uh, all you know, these things that are very much unique to those uh, Spider Men, just all of a sudden being projected onto him. And I thought that that was also pretty important when it comes down to him finding himself, because uh, it's just kind of direct confrontation of him trying to live up to the Peter Parker in his universe. Yeah, I, actually, you mentioned the the powers, and I'm curious if you all had thoughts about the thematic importance of those powers. I thought that him having invisibility as a power, considering that he doesn't want to have expectations and he doesn't want people to impress things on him, felt like a little on the news, but also like kind of cool. And also like, you know, growing up as a, growing up as a, as a, as a teen, teen boy, you definitely have times where you want to just disappear. And so I think that that's, it was, was really cool. I really hadn't made a connection about, um, what his electric ability, the the Venom Shock, uh, if that had any kind of thematic impact. I don't know if anybody found something there. I wonder if they were borrowing... I haven't read uh, Miles' version of... or Miles' Spider-Man comics, but I wonder if he had those in the comics and just bringing those powers out. What little bit I know of Miles' comic history, I think those are powers that he had in the comic. I'm not sure if they were thematically tied but I think they did a good job of making them work in the context of this movie and this story to make it feel like it was something that they made specifically for the story they were trying to tell, um, which I think is really interesting and, and tells me that they really took the time to learn the character before they took on this movie, which is a thing that happens a lot in adaptations is you don't really feel like the creators took the time to know what that character is about. Um, and I think they really did that for this. Yeah, that just kind of makes me wonder, too, about Miles just as a comic character. Because he seems of the, particularly of the one of the black uh, superheroes or black uh, characters in comics more recently, he seems to be the one that everyone really latched onto, comparing him to Riri Williams or any of the other, both on the Marvel and DC front, any of the other minorities in comics that we see it seems like he in particular really was uh, someone that the audience loved and sort of got that push and so i wonder if we'll ever be able to see those characters those other characters in those other characters in uh media like tv shows and movies and and so i i have some like insight on that because i remember when i i think i probably still have some of the first miles comics around because it was such a big deal Title Black Spider-Man, but it was really iffy for a while about whether it was going to stick around. And there were fans who were diehards. There were plenty of people saying that black folks aren't going to buy these comic books, so therefore this is only going to last for a little bit. The creators really liked Miles and really put a lot of heart into him. And then in my view, I think things changed really recently. Not recently, but um, changed once he got some writers who really could relate to him better and understand him better. Actually, one, the, one of the people who writes... Um, Miles currently is a Saladin uh, Ahmed from who's a native Detroiter um, and lives in Dearborn, and he's able to, in in his work, pull him together with lots of other different minority superheroes in ways that are interesting. They've done some collaborations with like Miss Marvel or or Ironheart, you know, Riri Williams you mentioned earlier, as well as some other characters. And Ahmed's work is really incredible. Frankly, like he's won multiple Eisners at this point for. His comic writing, so it finally feels like Miles has a writer who is uh, is the breakthrough for him. And with Spider Verse, it kind of got a chance to show how much depth there is to mind in that character. So I'm hopeful that you know there will be something interesting coming up there in terms of why was it well, why was he able to latch on you know in such a way? Why are people able to relate to him so well? Spider Man itself, like like even like traditional Peter Parker Spider Man is a lot of people's favorite comic book character who don't read comic books. Spider-Man is something, you know, this is a character that's kind of built to be witty and witty and irreverent and joking and breaks the fourth wall, talks to the audience and talks to a lot of the people who read 
comics in a way that's pretty relatable and straightforward. Yeah, I think the the relatableness of Spider-Man, I think, has always been one of the more powerful things about that character. I think it's one of the reasons why he's the most one of the most popular superhero characters ever is that he feels like a normal person. And when they did the transition to Miles, I think they did a great job of making Miles sort of as we've been talking about this whole time relatable in a way that it's difficult to do with other characters so thinking about uh sam wilson when he became captain america like that was a really cool kind of story development but sam wilson as a character does not feel relatable i mean he's still a soldier he still has this super suit that makes him fly he has a falcon that's his best buddy like these are all things that are really neat and like he has a cool character history but you you don't really feel connected to him in the same kind of way that uh, you do for Miles or even like the original Peter and his story of like being a kid who had to like figure out how to work and go to school and be Spider-Man at the same time. It's just not a thing that really comes into play for a lot of other characters. So I'm going to go ahead and push on my glasses here. It's not just a Falcon. It's a robotic Falcon. Okay. Okay. <laughs> don't, don't diss the Falcon like that. <laughs> I mean, it is dope. No, I, I, I think that's a good point. Is that like Falcon was already a superhero. It, there wasn't a sense of attachment to his story. It's like, you know, he, he traded, you know, he traded up costumes and up in, you know, prestige, but you know, he was a superhero, you know, a solid C plus B minus tier superhero and, you know, got a promotion. And that's like a lot different than than someone like Miles, who thinks of himself as an everyday kid, wants to be an everyday kid, can no longer be an everyday kid. And I think that that's part of why he he resonates. That said, where do we go for from here with Miles? I mean, Enter the Spider-Verse 2, Enter Into the Spider-Verse 2 has already been announced for 2020. Sorry, 2022, but given the uh, current global situation and human malware, also known as COVID, that's probably going to be changed. So where do we go from here with Miles? What would you like to see in that sequel or in, fingers crossed, you know, the third movie in this franchise? Where do you want to see Miles go in terms of uh, the cinematic universe? I know for me... In terms of just seeing what other Spider-Mans I want to see. I want to know what happened with Spider-Man 2099 as he's going through the multiverse and uh, just picking up all of these people. Yeah, so I got like two things. One, which is a slight detour. So when the multiverse essentially opens, Gwen gets dropped off like a week earlier than everybody else. Does that mean that there might just be dozens or hundreds of other spider people scattered throughout history? And what happens to those folks? So they didn't make it back at time. So that's just one question I have after watching it again. But the other piece is the thing that I would love to see in a sequel is a better villain. Yes. Right. Because I do think that is the one real weakness of this film is the villain. And that's not unusual for an intro film. Like an origin story film, they often have the weakest villains. That and the fourth, fourth or fifth sequel. So not saying anything about the original Spider-Man series of movies here, but I'm saying a lot about the original Spider-Man series of movies. I, I, as long as there's only one villain. One villain. It's not a good Spider-Man movie if it has more than one villain. <laughs> one villain, and it should be a better villain than was presented. And I will admit that I have never read a Spider-Man comic or any comic, actually, to be perfectly honest. But the problem with, like, Kingpin, is that his name? Yeah. Yeah. Is that weird mountain, square-shaped mountain of a man. I know that James is, like, amazed. I've never read a comic book, but I have not. It's not my my particular geekdom. Um, the weird, square-shaped villain of a man who is basically like, I lost everything that, you know, I treasured because I was evil. So I'm going to double down on that evil. And I'm going to bring a black hole, you know, at the center of the universe and just open up all this craziness. Was a terrible villain whose motivations were not strong enough, and he was a pale complexion of a character compared to everyone else that we talked to, and especially compared to Miles. Miles deserves a better villain, essentially, to go up against. And it should be one where you have to wonder a little bit, right? Like, if we think about black superhero movies, one of the reasons Black Panther resonates so much is because that villain was really not a villain all the way, right? Like, that was a villain where you were like, oh, you know, he's got a point. (laughs) 
Like, I'm not really sure who to root, root for here. And I think what would be interesting for Miles is to have to confront something like that, right? Like, they kind of got there a tiny bit with his uncle. Yeah. But they really couldn't drive that point home, right? They ended it uh, without actually tackling that 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 issue, that challenge, the implications of what it meant that his uncle was actually, quote unquote, the bad guy in this sense, right? What does that actually mean? And I think they can do more with that in the next movie. Yeah, um, I'm actually kind of sad that I thought that his uncle was a really fantastic foil for his dad in terms of, you know, Miles has all of these parental and guiding figures in this movie, as opposed to plenty of characters, you know, the parents are dead, they're functionally independent people. Both of Miles' parents are there. They both have a presence. Miles' dad's presence as straight edge, New York City beat cop, which, you know, a little unrealistic. But was very much the, you know, the, the foil to, you know, he and his brother having falling out and you find out that his brother Aaron, who, who uh, he doesn't like him running with, but, you know, it has this, has this part, you know, there's so much there that I wish would have been explored. Like how he got into doing this kind of work, how he ended up working for somebody like, like the Kingpin. And his motivations and background and, and interest in those things, I think those things would have been a much better use of a lot of the space that Kingpin kind of takes up. As far as, like, the coolest villain in the movie was clearly Doc Ock. And, and Olivia was so cool, and I'm glad that we got as much as much of her as possible. Even if we did have the trope of every time there was a fight sequence, Spider-Gwen as, like, one of the female spider spider people, you know, needed to be the person squaring off, which was weird... But I, I, I really thought that uh, I, I would have much rather had her as as a lead villain. And yeah, basically anybody but Kingpin, I think, had much better, a much more interest, much more visual interest, much more potential motivation. And we really did, just didn't get much of it. One of the things that I wanted to uh, I want to see in a sequel is I want to see how those villains are doing after it. One, because they all looked awesome. Like, all of them had, like, such a great look to them. Just, you know, calling back to our visuals uh, conversation earlier. We just don't have the time, even with the podcast form, because we're trying to keep this relatively manageable. We don't have the time to even, you know, go into that part of the visuals. But I just want to know what all the villains are doing now that uh, King Kingpin is uh, locked up now. And so just kind of an update on Miles' universe as he gets drawn into this bigger, you know, multiverse exploration. Well, I'm going to I'm going to age my like like date myself, I guess, and how do you guys feel about sliders? The TV show? <laughs> the TV show with with Jerry O'Connell because that's I went a different way with that, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because that's what I want from the sequel is I want multiverse sliding between all the different Spider-verses and like dealing with some kind of multidimensional caper would absolutely be entirely my jam. There's there's so many fun Easter eggs about the tweaked version of Miles' universe compared to others. I think that in Peter B. Parker's universe, it looked like it was Coca-Cola was the drink that I want to say that was in Times Square. Uh, And it's something different in Miles' universe. There's there's like a... I remember there being a billboard with Blake Griffin on it, who plays for the Detroit Pistons. But in Miles' universe, he's a baseball player. And you could have so much fun with just slightly tweaking all sorts of different things for all those different universes and picking up new spider people on the way. I I feel like that would be a whole lot of zany fun. And I could use a little bit of zany fun in my life. I will say I do agree. Exploring that universe would be amazing, especially if you could turn it into a TV show where each season explores a different universe with a different Spider-Man as the background. So it's maybe not even always Miles as the foreground character, but he comes into the lives of other Spider-Men. That'd be super fun. So since Ryan has brought it up, I know this is only the first episode, but this is officially the Sliders cast, and we're now just going to rate every single episode of Sliders. Because <laughs> um, it's one of the best science fiction shows to ever exist, minus like the last two seasons. <laughs> Those just don't exist. I learned from Scrubs. They don't exist. So can I go back to the, um, I can't remember who was saying this about Doc Ock, and I just want to like underscore exactly how amazing Doc Ock is in this version. And not, it's not just because Catherine Hahn is a national treasure and just a goddamn goddess of her own, Absolutely. but also because she's just a really badass character and I would have loved the opportunity to explore more. So I'm hoping the bust that hit her didn't actually kill her. And that she pops back up at some point, and I would love to explore more of her motivation and just background, because that would be fun. The other piece is going back to Miles' uncle. 
Like, I also, yeah, I, I feel like in another universe where he is still a villain, it would be interesting to explore, like, how he gets to that point. Because you don't get a lot of really great tech-heavy, like, black supervillains. I mean, barring Samuel L. Jackson in, like, Kingsman. Right. Uh, you don't really get a lot of those, and I'm here for it. Entirely here for all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to tell Hollywood, though, that all black people don't always wear purple. And it's okay to dress us in other colors. That said, well, we look good black people do wear a lot of purple, yeah. so I'm going to let it go. I'm just saying, there are purple, other colors we look gold, good in. Gold, silver. yellow, orange, green, red, pink, whatever you want to pick. Just saying, it could have been any other color. It's always purple. He still looked good. <laughs> yeah, that purple suit was on point. But I agree that like Prowler, I thought, was such a cool character. And I understand why... He had to be killed to make this story transformation sort of happen. But I would love to see more about his history. How, not only how he got there, but like what what motivates a person to do something like that. Like in a, in a I guess a lot of media, but also in a lot of real lives, uh, people will commit crimes and stuff um, and end up in situations like that because they're trying to take care of their family or whatever, and there's not a lot of opportunity for them. But because we don't get a lot of information on, like, what Prowler's deal is, we don't get a good sense for, like, why he is the Prowler. He says something about, like, wanting Miles to look up to him, but, like, that one line is not quite enough to give you an understanding of, like, what his character is. So I would I would love to hear more about that. And I think going back to what we were talking about for Kingpin and why all the other characters seem so cool, but Kingpin doesn't, is that, like, his story isn't unique in any way. Like, you could re- take Kingpin out of that movie and replace him with literally any other Spider-Man villain, except for maybe Venom, and it would work exactly the same. Like, it would be no change would need to be made other than you make a smaller character. Absolutely. Uh, and I think... That's why I feel like he that's the work. Spider-Man video game for PlayStation Four. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Like you don't. It's it's very strange that that's the direction they went. So I think expanding on that and really having a a villain or a set of characters that feel more connected to Miles, like the the Spider-Men feel great because they have a core that's connecting back to the Miles story, while the villains don't really, other than Prowler. And I think that's why he feels the most like successful of all the villains. But if I had to pick, I want to see more of Scorpion because that crazy mutant Scorpion dude looked looked sweet. And like, I just want to know what his deal is. Rolling around speaking Spanish, uh, trying to kill people with a claw, with a claw hand. <laughs> I think that would be great. But uh, we got to wrap things up here because we don't want this discussion to go for two hours, which is... Just about the runtime of the actual movie that we're talking about. We could. We didn't even get into audio at this point. So, like, there's still a lot left over to talk about. Oh, yeah. The music like is soundtrack. great. That soundtrack is great. Uh, but we do have to wrap things up. So I'm just going to go to everyone real quickly. Final thoughts. Who's ready? Who wants to start us off? I'll start us off. I think uh, final thoughts about Spider-Verse is that it's a really fantastic movie. It connects with all sorts of people who watch it. It connects in a very special way with Black audiences, I found. And we talked earlier about the different Spider-People encountering each other and having the Spider-Sense reaction and the, oh, you're like me. And that was the reaction I had to watching the movie. I, I watched this. I watched Miles. I watched him be awkward. And well, awkward in his gifted and talented school and his overburdened expectations and trying to live up to all the things people wanted for him. And my Spider-Sense kind of thing went off. And I, and I said, oh. He's like me, and that was a really great feeling to have from a superhero movie, and one that I really just don't have that often. So it was really great to have. Uh, piggybacking off of that, I think that the Miles's story, the story told in, in Into the Spider-Verse, is such a relatable story that it, it just it inspires me every time I watch it. Like, as an, an adult who still is figuring out their way through life, like watching the growth that Miles experiences over the course of the like two hours or whatever is just like gives me just gives me life. Like I leave this movie thinking I can wear the mask. I can be anyone. I can really like hit my goals that I want to set for myself that I've never been able to get to. It just it, it makes me 
feel powerful in a way that as much as I love Black Panther, hashtag Killmonger was right. I just don't connect to any characters in that movie like I do with Miles and Into the Spider-Verse. So I just, I just really think it's an impeccable movie. Um, also, What's Up Danger is better than Sunflower. Well, all I got to say is all it takes is a leap of faith and you can hit those goals. And I want to pass it on to Lauren. That was, that was, I was going to take that one. You've stolen mine. No, I mean, basically, I'm, I'm in the same place as all of you. Like, even coming to this from not being really that much of a comic book fan, it's just a good movie. So I also want people to not necessarily always qualify this film with comic book or animated or any other adjective before the word film. It's honestly just a good film, right? There are certain animated films that transcend their, you know, subgenre in the Academy Awards and they just become best picture material. And this is one of those films that is just a good movie. And the fact that it's animated actually helps that in some ways because it is just luxurious to look at in lots of different ways. But even aside from that, just the character development, the plot, the writing, everything about it is believable and it's just a good movie. And I really appreciate that because you don't get a lot of really great films around, I mean, ever, but especially not around young black protagonists like this. And so it was just really nice to have just a good film. And one of the things I like about including this podcast is, you know, we're talking about black films in this podcast, and some of those are good films, and some of those are terrible films that we just happen to really love. <laughs> oh, just wait. But yeah, but they're often like, they're caveated with this is a black film as if it's some separate subgenre and they're not going to be evaluated on their own merits in the same pantheon as every other film that Hollywood produces. And I don't want that to happen here, right? This isn't the black Spider-Man film. This is just the best Spider-Man film. Watching this film sort of emphasized the importance of things like subtext, uh, subtlety, you know, visual subtlety and just audio. I know we didn't get to the audio piece, but it's one of those films that you watch once and then like a couple of days later, you need to rewatch it just to see some of the stuff you missed in that first uh, viewing because it's it, it's amazing uh, all the things that got crammed into each frame of this movie. And I think it all comes together very beautifully like jazz. There we go. We got our brought everything around. Uh, you know, this movie, you know, that said, I'm going to go with the really bad pun here. Uh, this movie has the jazz. With that, I think we are done with this discussion as I have three shaking heads uh, looking at me on this Zoom call. I do not feel ashamed, and neither should you for watching this movie. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Black Movie Podcast. Our show is edited by Mike Knight. Our theme song is by Chris Negro Justice Brown, and our logo was created by Savannah Alexander. Even if you never heard of me, just know I murder bees. Leave all these kids with third degrees. Evidence is empirically laid out in front for you to see. I found the Trinity. Good people, we did memories. These are the only things.